Good. As we uh, turn to the scriptures, I want to remind us of um, the catechism questions that we have read and answered uh, today. Uh, number 89, how is the word made effectual to our salvation? The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners, of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Ah. All right, there's something to ponder, eh? Something to ponder. So let us then turn to the Scriptures and uh, hear the Word of the Lord. First from the New Testament, from Ephesians chapter 5, and then from the Old, from Psalm 1 and Psalm 150. So first, the Word of the Lord from Ephesians, from the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 5, the whole chapter. Follow God's example, says the Apostle. That's how it starts. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, Foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of, our, of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, but because of such things, God, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The reading of the New Testament. And now from the Old, Psalm 1, the first of our poems and hymns in that great book, and then the last one as well, Psalm 150. Psalm 1. 
Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And now turning to the last of that lovely book called the Psalms, if you'll pardon me, I'll read my own version, which is a bit Hebraicized. Instead of saying praise, 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 which the psalm does no less than 12 times, I'm going to use the Hebrew verb, which you already know. And the Hebrew verb is hallelujah. So you know the word hallelujah. That means praise Yahweh, praise the Lord. I'm just going to put the hallelujahs in, all 12 of them. You ready? Hallelujah. Hallelujah God in his holy temple. Hallelujah him in his mighty heavens. Hallelujah him for his acts of power. Hallelujah him for his surpassing greatness. Hallelujah him with the blast of the ram's horn. Hallelujah him with the bass lyre and the treble. Hallelujah him with hand drum and dancing. Hallelujah him with strings and flutes. Hallelujah him with clashing cymbals. Hallelujah him with crashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Say the last word with me. Hallelujah. That means praise the Lord. We have the hallelujah twice, fully, first and last words of the poem. We have the hallelujah ten more times. That's the plural command. If we were in Alabama, we'd say y'all. <laughs> the plural command, y'all praise. So twelve times altogether for that blessed word hallelujah, the command to praise. And maybe the twelve times evokes the twelve tribes of Israel? Perhaps? So the complete praise of the whole nation of Israel in the last of all the Psalms, which is the hymnal of ancient Israel, maybe that's it. Can't guarantee it, but maybe that's it. So here we are um, in a new theme, a new topic, a new series. Delighting in the Psalms will be the title for the series, and it's the title for the sermon too. And uh, we've had what I hope is a joyful adventure uh, for two years now in the book of Revelation. I hope it wasn't too tedious two years for one book. And uh, in these many, many months then, we've learned that this last book of the Bible is a hopeful book filled with the gospel. And that might have been surprising. It is a book, of course, called The Revelation of Jesus Christ, and we find that it is not only by Christ and from Jesus Christ, but also about Jesus Christ and full of the good news of Christ. And so we discover in that book The triumph of the Lamb who was slain, the Lamb who now lives forever, the Lamb who walks amid the lampstands, which are the church in chapter 1 of that book, the Lamb who sits enthroned over all heaven and earth in chapter 5 of that book, the Lamb, as the same author says, who takes away the sins of the world. John chapter 1, verse 29. The Lamb, as chapter 10 assures us, who sends his gospel through the church to all the nations in the preaching of the word. The Lamb who, as chapter 19 assures us, vanquishes all evil. Hallelujah. And the Lamb, as the first chapter assures us, who makes us a kingdom and priests 
to praise Almighty God. So now we turn to another book of the Bible, the Psalms, and in another part of the Bible, the Old Testament. Revelation is found at the very end, of course, and appropriately so. But in one thin-leafed uh, printing of the Bible I keep on my desk, uh, I find that the, in the math of the pages of the book, the Psalms are exactly in the middle. That particular edition, the total number of pages comes to one, 1,150 for the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Divide that by two, and that's 575. Lo and behold, page 575 finds us in Psalm 122. The Psalms are literally in the middle of the Bible. And you turn to that middle page in that particular printing of the Bible, and here are the lines we read. I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Middle of the Bible? Book of Psalms. And preachers for nearly 2,000 years have said that this middle book of the Bible is also, in many ways, the heart of the Bible. It is the one that Christians seem to know best in memory. And when we discover the ancient scrolls, the manuscripts of the Bible, we find none that are so tattered and torn and stained with the grease stains of fingers than the manuscripts of the book of Psalms. Why is that true? Because they were handled daily in the singing and the praying and the meditating of the church. The Psalms were the first and for a while the only hymnal of the church of Jesus. And uh, Christians prayed and meditated upon them and sang them and chanted them daily. And so one scholar I know who's worked on uh, the manuscripts of the Psalms from antiquity has said that, uh, yeah, no set of manuscripts is more torn and tattered and stained than the manuscripts of the book of Psalms. We see something of that truth reflected in the fact that the New Testament quotes the Psalms more than any other Old Testament book. There are, by one standard count, no less than 295 quotations of the Old in the New. That's a lot. That's about 12 per book on average. And uh, of those 295, no less than 67 are from the Psalms. Candidate number two for that list is Isaiah at only 55. That is, the Psalms are quoted more by the authors of the New Testament, by Christ and his apostles, and the reason for this is probably easy to understand. If you're singing and praying those things every day of your life, what's in your memory? You know, those texts more than any others. And the apostles knew those texts. Back in the ninth century, one of the rules for appointing a new bishop was, you get this? He had to have memorized the entire book of Psalms in Latin so he could lead it even if there were no manuscripts available in the daily liturgies of the church. So the Psalms were the, the principal liturgy, the principal book of worship. And uh, in Old Testament Israel, we find that um, when the temple got rebuilt in the 500s B.C., Second Temple, we'll call it, what's the hymnal of the Second Temple? The completed book of Psalms. David begins that book, a thousand-ish B.C., but David doesn't write the whole thing. A lot of other authors and poets come in, and musicians, we have others named, and some of the psalms are clearly from the time of exile, when Jerusalem had been destroyed and there was no temple, and others are clearly from after the time of exile, when the temple has been rebuilt and Jerusalem restored, and that's about a thousand years, totally, of, of, uh, of history for the authoring and collecting of these 
150 songs and prayers and hymns of ancient Israel. And it's in the second temple that this becomes the official hymnal of the ancient church Old Testament style. And so when the New Testament church arises out of that, with the coming of Christ, it's naturally the first and for a long time the only hymnal of the church. Here we are halfway through the Bible and in the heart of the Bible. And in this book we discover the deep delight of delighting in God himself. As we could be like the Pharisees and delight in the text. And stop maybe with the text. As many Pharisees did as we learn from the Gospels. Many Pharisees stopped with the text. You search the scriptures, says Jesus. But you don't come to me. John chapter 10. You search the scriptures. All right. They, they love the scriptures. But their love of God was defective. It was missing somehow. It was missing something crucial. And God was not first and foremost. For so many of those Pharisees. To delight in the Psalms, then, is not merely to delight in the text or the beauty of the poetry or the, or the loveliness of the music that people have created for them. To truly delight in the Psalms is to delight in the God who is the author of the Psalms. For this book is all about the worship of the true and living God. And if we enter into these words truly, that is not merely the mortal words, words by human authors, human, mortal, finite, penned by people like David and Asaph and Solomon and the sons of Korah and others. If we enter into these words truly, we enter the sanctuary of what is immortal and eternal and holy. The book of Psalms is, as it were, a, a holy temple of the living God. And Psalm 1 is its front door. Or maybe I'll, I'll amend that statement. Psalms 1 and 2 are the front door, a double door to the great cathedral, the temple, the sanctuary of the living God, the heart of the Bible, the words that are the prayers and songs of ancient Israel. But unlike our own prayers and songs, these are the ones that are written by God himself. And so God gives us the words by which we pray. And we pray these words back to him. And in the praying and the singing and the memorization of them, the meditation upon them, we give God back the very words that he has used to teach us how to pray and sing rightly. And so in a hymnal like the Trinity Hymnal, which you have, a lovely, lovely hymnal, there are about 50 of these psalms. In the revised Trinity Hymnal, which came out a year or two or three ago, we get all 150 psalms. But uh, the standard of the committee that chose the hymns was that these hymns should be based upon the model of the psalms. That is, they had to be true and scriptural and effective in, in art and in prayer. And uh, the psalms, the hymns, I should say, of the Trinity Hymnal 1990 are excellently chosen to reflect that biblical uh, model. When we enter into the psalms, yes, the words are human, mortal, and finite, penned by David and Asaph and others. But unlike some hymns, the spirit is behind them entirely. Right, poets with their devoutness and their intelligence can create great poetry in prayer and meditation and song. And that's lovely and commendable and right to do. The Psalms, in a certain way, excel them. 
because they are inspired by the Holy Spirit himself. And so we pray and sing God's words back to him. So for the next year or so, begging your goodwill, I uh, plan to preach upon the Psalms. There are 150 of them, but wait, don't panic. (laughs) It took St. Augustine 26 years to preach through the Psalter. Back in 400 or so A.D. Uh, Now he did other things too. He had many projects going. But 26 years to preach through all the Psalms, and he wrote seven volumes on the Psalms. We're not going to do that. Okay, at least don't ask me to do that. Okay. We will not do that. We'll probably get to 20 or 25 of them. And in that way, we'll get a, a sweet taste of this sweet book. And as Psalm 34 tells us, taste and see that the Lord is good. All right, well, the Catechism has said that the reading, and especially the preaching of the Scripture, is rendered effective by God. We will taste, and God willing, we will see that the Lord is good. Now, in light of St. Paul's exhortation, which we also read from Ephesians 5, it seems especially appropriate to begin this plan on Pentecost Sunday, which is today. The Sunday that in which the church remembers the wondrous arrival of the Holy Spirit upon the earliest church, an arrival in a new and mightier way than ever known before that day, back in 30-ish A.D., that mighty rush of wind and tongues of fire upon the twelve apostles, in filling them with a new and gorgeous presence, and a new and uh, bold power to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, now fully fulfilled in their own eyewitness experience. The three years of Jesus' ministry, his cross, his resurrection, his ascension, and having experienced these things with their own eyes and ears, they are now filled with a new and spiritual power and indwelling that can never be lost, greater even than what Abraham or David or Isaiah or John the Baptist ever experienced. The church lives in Pentecost. The church lives in Pentecost. And when you enter into the faith of Jesus, that is your life. The Spirit of Christ is its life, is our life. And so St. Paul exhorts us, don't be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord. Don't get drunk on wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And that sentence, that command in verse 18 of Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit, has a number of participial verbs that follow off it, that tell us the manner in which this life of Spirit-filled discipleship happens. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then we have two more participles, singing and making music from your heart to the Lord. And then one more participle, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, what's the Spirit-filled life marked by, according to Paul in Ephesians 5? The words of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The beauty of music in our hearts and in our voices. And the heart of gratitude, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. What's the, one of the greatest marks of the true church of Jesus? Well, without faith and repentance, nothing starts, right? But there are congregations that, if you'll, you'll pardon the phrase, that wallow in their sense of guilt over sin, a guilt that is proper and true, 
But the gospel gives us a further gift. And it gives us the gift of joy, of gratitude, and of this power of love that binds us together as one body, one family of Christ, not just one congregation, but the church of Jesus worldwide, and binds us into oneness with Jesus himself and fills us with joy and love. And these are the principal marks of the life of the Christian according to the New Testament. This is not to denigrate the sorrow that comes from true repentance. Oh no. Without that, we're lost. But building upon that, God gives us a gift of joy. And that is such loveliness. And so the life of the Spirit, according to St. Paul here in Ephesians 5, is a life of praise and gratitude to God. Occupy yourself with that kind of grateful praise, and you occupy yourself with the best things of God within this mortal life. And then beyond this mortal life, what more shall we do? <laughs> well, a lot of the same, eh? <laughs> that is, the gratitude and joy will never cease. It will be perfected, and it will never end. Now, in the Psalms, we find this so effectively done because the Psalms are poetry. Now, when I talk to my undergraduates about poetry, instantly at least two-thirds of the eyebrows in the room, um, you know, kind of go, mm, and uh, they think about seventh grade when they had to study poetry with their English teacher, and, um, mm, okay, it was stiff stuff and elite stuff and stuff they didn't quite like, and maybe ten of them in the room, no, six, no, three, liked it. Okay, how many have that experience somewhere in memory from the earlier grades? In, okay, all right, yeah, poetry, Ooh. But remember that all those nursery rhymes your mama sang to you when you were three? Jack and Jill went up the... Two? A pail of... Jack fell down and... And Jill came... Why do you know that? Maybe you haven't said that in 40 years. Maybe longer. Why do you still know that? Because it's poetry. And poetry makes, has the art to make words effective. Poetry latches into our memory. It, it grabs hold of at least the brain, and sometimes the soul. And poetry can give us all a range of emotions. How about this one? There was a young lady from Niger who smiled as she rode on a tiger. They came back from the ride with the lady inside, and the smile on the face of the tiger. <laughs> Our poetry can be ridiculous. How about this one? Arms in the man I sing, who forced by fate and haughty Juno's unrelenting hate, expelled and exiled, left the Trojan shore. Long labors both by sea and land he bore, and in the doubtful war before he won the Latin realm and built the destined town, he banished go his banished gods restored to divine rights, and settled sure success in line from whence the race of Alban fathers come, and the long glories of majestic Rome. I'll stop there. Aren't you glad? That's the opening stanza of Virgil's Aeneid from about 70 B.C., uh, a 400-page epic poem. All right. We, I liked the book. <laughs> Maybe you didn't back in Latin class. I liked the book. How about the lyrics of every pop song you've ever loved or hated? She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is really creative. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
You think you've lost your love? Well, I sold her yesterday. It's you she's thinking of. She told me what to say. She loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is not great poetry. <laughs> and when I first heard that, I thought the Beatles were not very creative. And then this came down the hit parade. Yesterday, all my troubles seemed so far away. You know the lyric? I bet a lot of you do. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Though I believe in yesterday. Suddenly I'm not half the man I used to be. There's a shadow hanging over me. Oh, yesterday came suddenly. Oh, the Beatles were poets. They were poets. How about this one from 200 years ago? To see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wildflower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. William Blake, Auguries of Innocence. Or this one. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Emily Dickinson. Poetry can evoke joy, sorrow, uh, deep concentration, uh, enormous joy, memories of love, memories of loss, grief, ecstatic happiness. Lo and behold... In the book of Psalms, David is that kind of poet. Or to put it more thoroughly, the Holy Spirit proves to be that kind of poet. And so we find in the Psalms words that catch our memory and our heart forever. Here's the opening of the book. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But rather his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The wicked are not so, but rather like the chaff the wind drives away. And so in our poem we find effective words in poetical art, an art that is gorgeous. The Hebrew poets loved to make word pictures, That is, their manuscripts were not decorated, at least not that we know of. It's just the words on the leather scroll. Later, writers would decorate them wonderfully well. The monks of the Middle Ages would decorate them wonderfully well, what we call illuminated manuscripts. But the most ancient forms are just the words. That's all. But what do the words do? He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like the chaff the wind drives away. And what we find here is then the fruitful tree, rooted, fruited, firm, loved by some uh, some orchard farmer, who loves the fruit tree that is planted by the irrigation canal, by the channel of water, and it's there. It's not a river that's going to erode the roots so the tree falls over by the erosion. It's the tree that's planted. And the Hebrew word there suggests not the wild stream, but the irrigation channel. The, the, the tree is a cultivated tree. But this tree is even more, uh, more wonderful than the natural tree you know. 
because its leaves do not wither. Now, we talk about evergreens, and the palm tree in the Near East is an evergreen tree, but you walk among the palms, and what do you find all under your feet? The older the, the grove, the deeper the pile of brown, broken fronds. And you can walk on them, and they're a foot or a foot and a half or two feet deep in the oldest of the palm groves. Those leaves wither and fall. But in this supernatural tree of Psalm 1, in the vivid image, they are like a tree planted by streams of water that gives its fruit and its seeds and its leaf does not wither. That is, it's a picture of everlasting life. And all that they do... Now we move from the tree to the person. All that they do prospers. That is, the Lord grants success. And that word success here is not necessarily worldly success of wealth or power, but the life of virtue and honor that the Psalms so commend. Not so the wicked. In that line, there's not even a verb in Hebrew. I'll even say the line in Hebrew because it sounds like what it means. Lo ken harushayim. Lo ken, not so. Harushayim, the wicked. It sounds like what it means. The wicked are not so. We would fill it out with a full verb, but no, don't do it. Not so the wicked. Let it be as terse as the Hebrew. They are like the chaff. The wind drives away. And what in the world is chaff? Well, we who buy our bread from grocery stores <laughs> and think that, um, uh, that farmers have nothing to do with it don't know what chaff is. Oh, when I said we, I didn't really mean you necessarily, or even me, but a lot of us, you know, we think milk comes from grocery stores, right? <laughs> we think bread comes from the shelf. Well, okay, so grow your grain, and then harvest it. And then you take your grain, and you cut off the heads, and you put it on the hard, packed dirt, or even better, the bare bedrock of an eroded hilltop somewhere inside Judah, where so many of the hilltops are bare bedrock from the long wind of the Mediterranean. And then you take your ox and hitch him to a heavy board, and you stand on the board, and you say, giddy up. And the ox then drags you and the board over the heads of the stalks of grain, and they crack the heads, almost like the cracking of peanut shells. Only the uh, the, head, the, the covers are lighter, more, a bit like autumn leaves, but heavier. Okay, lighter than shells, heavier than leaves. And then when all of it has been cracked, you take your pitchfork, your winnowing fork, you toss it in the air. Now inside biblical Israel, inside Palestine today, all you have to do is toss something in the air and the wind will blow it. And the reason for this is because just... West of Israel is 2,500 miles of Mediterranean Sea with nothing to stop the winds. And the prevailing westerlies blow nearly all the time. There's always wind. Just toss the stuff in the air. And the wind drives away the husks, the chaff, like autumn leaves. And as another psalm tells us, there they are dashed into dust. Two vivid images. The one who loves God, the one who meditates upon the scriptures, the one who, who makes the scriptures his meditation day and night. That person is like the tree, firmly planted by that stream of water. 
which yields its fruit of its season and its leaf does not wither. And to go the other way, not so. Not so the wicked. They are like the chaff the wind drives away. The Hebrew poets love those word pictures. And then they also give us what the scholars call parallelism. Have you noticed how one line seems to mirror, be mirrored in the next and maybe even the next? Who is this blessed person in the opening line of the book? Psalm 1. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Three lines in parallel structure. We have verbs, stand, uh, I'm sorry, walk, stand, sit. We have wicked, sinners, scoffers. In the middle, we have prepositional phrases, in the council, in the way, in the seat. And two of those are about places. The way is the road or the path, and the seat is the chair. Who is this blessed person? Well, he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. That means he doesn't take the immoral advice of those who do not love God. He doesn't consider their plans. He doesn't walk in their track. He goes another way. Nor does he stand in the way of sinners. Now notice between walking and standing, we have a more decisive action. If you're walking, you're in motion. You've got options. If you stand, you're more decisive. And the righteous one who loves God and meditates upon Scripture, he does not stand in the way, that is the path, of sinners. A vivid image again is not that you shouldn't walk down Elm Street because so-and-so lives on Elm Street. That's not quite the way it's done. Sure, walk down Elm Street, no matter who lives there. But don't follow the way of life of that person you know Notorious, who may live on Elm I have no idea. Is there an Elm Street in Harrisville? I have no idea. Okay. Uh, maybe you live on Elm Street. I apologize. Okay. But he doesn't walk in the... I'm sorry. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. Now this one, the third one, same syntax, same sentence of the structure, uh, but notice how more decisive it is. And he does not sit. Now if I'm going to sit in the seat of the scoffer, let's say this is the scoffer's seat. What am I if I'm sitting in the scoffer's seat? I'm the scoffer. That's the most decisive of all. And in the Hebrew Bible, the words for, rich, for wicked and sinner are very common words. The word for the scoffer is far less common. And it's a far more intense kind of evil that's in view in that last word of the first verse. Nor sit in the seat of scoffers. To be the scoffer is not just to be a, a secret sinner. Hypocrites are that. We all have at least a little bit of that in our souls. We want our sins to be concealed. But the scoffer is very different than that. The scoffer revels in the publicity of his sins. And as he or she revels in that, they scoff at the righteous. They publicly hate the church of Jesus. They seek to undermine the lives of the devout. 
And not only do they want to be damned themselves, they want you to be damned with them. That's the scoffer. A very public kind of sinner. And so we see that though the three lines of verse 1 are all parallel in the same kind of meaning, not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, the third one is so intense. It's an escalation of evil, line by line. And the righteous person is the opposite. What's the righteous person do? But rather he delights in the law of God. And in that law, he or she meditates day and night. That is, it's not merely love for the words of Scripture, or the words of the Torah in our psalm, the books of Moses called Torah here, the basic word for instruction, often translated law. That love of God's law is right for the saint. The person of God has, has begun with repentance, which is the renunciation of evil. And our renunciations are always imperfect and infirm. Nonetheless, the believer has repented and has moved toward the love of God. That's what repentance means, to turn from evil and turn toward God and the good. The one who has repented has begun to love the law of God. And how do we make progress in our love for the law of God? Well, one way is this. We meditate upon it. We make it our delight. We make it our focus of study. We make it the guide for life. And so... This godly person, this devout person becomes blessed because the law of God, the will of God, is their delight and their meditation day and night. In the Psalms, we find this vast variety then, don't we? We find uh, God's blessedness in prayers of distress. Most of the first 40 Psalms are prayers in distress. We find also the histories of Israel recited in the Psalms. A bundle of the Psalms re rehearse that history, sometimes as histories of failure and rebellion, sometimes as histories of grace and the mercies of God and the miracles that he has done. We also find even poems that drive us to the edge of what it seems to be despair, except for the fact that the psalmist is still praying. One psalm, the darkest of them all, ends in this line. And darkness is my closest friend. Would you dare to pray that line? The psalmist does. And darkness is my closest friend. Now in Christian form, we might say the next line. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> now if Jesus is the one by whom you pray, is darkness truly your closest friend? That is... The praying, the fact that the, that the psalmist is praying means that this is not despair. But the words come close. And then we have outright joy. I rejoice when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Yeah. Let, the, let the trees of the field clap their hands. Let, let the rivers of the mountains sing for joy. The psalms do that. St. Augustine says, if the psalm prays, you pray. If it laments, you lament. If it exalts, you exalt. If it hopes, you hope. If it fears, you fear. Everything written here 
is a mirror for our soul. Do you want to know how to pray? How to meditate upon God? Well, this book gives great help for exactly that. So one final, well, I won't say one final point, one final set of points, okay? (laughs) I'm always too long. I apologize. All right. But who does this psalm, um, who who does this person describe? Who is this supremely blessed person in verse 1? We might say with the tradition that is King David, and David was, of course, the sweet singer of Israel, named in the headings of the book no less than 73 times as author. More than any other man's, they are, uh, the Psalms are his prayers and his praises. And so in a certain way, David is that happy man, that blessed man of verse 1. What about this? The devout reader, the devout hearer, the devout singer of the Psalms. We who read and hear and sing are certainly invited into that happiness to walk in this very path that is not the path of the wicked, but rather the path of delighting in God. And so we are invited to delight in the great God who stands behind both the Torah and the Psalms. And we are meant to be that happy person. And by God's design, we shall be if we are not yet. But there is only one person who most fully and completely walked this path of blessedness and happiness, and you know his name. It's Jesus. He alone ever and always loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so in his earthly ministry, Jesus quotes this book. He quotes it as his own In Hebrews chapter 2, our unknown author actually presents Jesus as singing these psalms. In Matthew 26, the disciples go out to the Mount of Olives after the Passover meal, the Last Supper, and before they leave for the Garden of Gethsemane, and you know what will happen there, they sing the Passover hymn, which happens to be Psalms 113 to 118. And just 12 hours later or so, Jesus on his cross will recite the Psalms at the hour of his death. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And last of all, from Psalm 31, into your hands I commit my spirit. The Psalms define the life, the ministry, the death of our Lord Jesus and his resurrection, Psalm 16. David faltered. We know that. The Psalms record it and mark his repentance. We falter. You know that. Jesus never faltered. And so as we take up the Psalms, we take them as the songs and prayers not only of King David, and not only of the church in all of its ages, but also as the songs and prayers of great David's greatest son, namely, Jesus Christ our Lord. To enter into this book, then, to enter into these words truly, is to enter into a spiritual union with Jesus Christ in his experience of this book. And to truly delight in the Psalms is to delight in Jesus Christ, who is their fulfillment. 
If we enter into these words, that is, not merely mortal words, we enter the sanctuary of what is immortal and eternal and holy. And so I invite you into this lovely book. And let us then grow in grace, in faith, in hope, and in the love that these words teach. Shall we pray? Father, we bless you and thank you for um, the goodness and the beauty of this particular book, the book of Psalms. And we pray, Lord, that um, in these weeks and months to come, by your goodwill, that we may uh, learn all the more further to delight in these poems and prayers and songs. Grant us, Lord, to further our discipleship, to further our walk along the right path, not the path of the wicked, not the seat of the scoffer, but the path of uh, those who meditate upon your will. Lord, make that ever more true of us. And if anyone here is not yet in that point in life, we pray, Lord, that by your grace you would make it so, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior of the world, in whose name we pray. Amen.